Uh, let's begin tonight with a, with a lesson titled, um, quite simply, The Cross as a Tree. And I, this isn't a deep title for sure, but I think it's a pretty deep run, Old to New Testament. Um, let me tell you how I landed on this thought. Um, the cross, when I think of the cross, I, of course, I think like most Christians, think of the place where Jesus died. And then I start to think of the theology of the cross. I don't think a lot about the physical cross much. I don't think about what it looked like very often. I think Jesus died there, and here's what it means to me. Substitution, died for my sins, took my place. All of the theological principles that make up the heart of Christianity. And I'm not here to argue in one lesson which ones of them are right and wrong. And you've heard me say before, I don't think it really matters that we don't get the theology of the cross right all of the time. I think what matters is that the cross gets us. You know what I mean? Like it grabs us where we need it. So sometimes we need to see it through a lens that we don't need to see it through later. And I, I'm not trying to be to waffle on landing on what the cross means. I just don't think it means one thing. Uh, but I don't think about it physically a lot. And I don't think about it in terms of its actual physical makeup. Like what, it, what kind of tree did they use? Like when they went and cut it down and when the Romans... Did they carve it out of the same, did they kill four or five different people on that same piece of wood? I, I don't think about those things, and um, they, they, it's interesting now that I do think of it, but it's not much vital to my spirit man. And I also don't think of the cross in metaphoric terms, which is interesting considering the Bible's written a lot in metaphor and, and, and allegory, but I don't think of the cross that way. I don't, I don't think of it, uh, I, I, I know that historically they happened. Historically, they killed people on crosses. It wasn't an illustration, it wasn't an allegory, it wasn't a metaphor. Um, they put people up on pieces of wood and they drove spikes through their hands and their feet. Sometimes they tied them. Um, they stripped them of their clothing. They often beat them within an inch of their life before they put them on that piece of wood. And they hung them up in front of the public so that they could die a humiliating and slow and painful death. That is a historical fact. Now you can argue whether Jesus died there. I, ch I choose to believe that he did. You can argue about the resurrection. I choose to believe in that but I don't think a lot about that physicality of it. The interesting thing is that as the New Testament unfolds, the theology of the cross starts to become both real, they, they really believed it happened, they were eyewitnesses to it in fact, but it also starts to become very allegorical. They start to actually take the cross and implant it into different kinds of stories. They start to change the way they talk about it. And what's fascinating to me is that they start to use their Hebrew stories as a way of describing what they saw happen at the cross. And then as the Bible goes all the way through the book of Revelation, the New Testament writers keep writing that way. So I wanna to get to that in a moment. Before I do, I wanna give you a little salad in front of the steak tonight. Just a little diversion about the cross that kinda of gets us ready for where I think we can land tonight. And I wanna do it in three passages from Luke. Luke chapter nine, Luke chapter 14, and Luke chapter 23. And there's of course going to be a very similar thought in these verses, you'll be able to catch it without my help. He said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. This is, these are the words of Jesus in 23. 27, also the words of Jesus, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then some narrative voice in Luke 23, no longer Jesus speaking. Now, as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. There's two similar things happening in these three verses. And I think they're pretty easy to catch. One, 
cross, cross, cross. That was low-hanging fruit. The other one that is important but might not be as obvious, Luke, Luke, Luke. Now, why do I bring that up? Because what we see happening in these verses, I think, are a narrative flow designed on purpose by the author to show us progressive stages of what the cross means. Luke, writing after the events, looking back on them, can put his thoughts into it to to not just tell you about what happened on a hill outside of Jerusalem, but to put a little spiritualism into it, to drop you into the story. And so you have the idea that we, if we're going to follow Jesus, must take up our cross daily. Then Jesus progresses a few chapters later to say that we must um, carry that if we're going to be his disciple. In other words, it's not just pick it up once a day, it's pick it up to be a disciple, to be a follower, we keep picking up the cross. And then finally, someone picks Jesus' cross up for him. Or this thought, as just try to lay it out succinctly, we take, we take up our cross, we do it in order to follow Jesus. Ultimately, we take up his cross. Because watch how the narrative goes. Jesus says, pick up your cross daily and follow me. A few chapters later, we do it as disciples, which means it's a continuous thing, which is an odd thing because a cross is a place you die. You should only have to pick it up once. You're going to the electric chair. How many times do you go to the electric chair? Nobody goes twice. Nobody goes three times. Nobody goes four times. So it's a bizarre thing to say, pick up your cross daily and then advance it into this. If you're going to be my disciple, disciples follow. If you're going to be my disciple, you're going to disciple while carrying your cross. And ultimately, what you're actually going to do is what Simon the Cyrenian does at the foot of the cross is he picks Jesus' cross up and carries it. And Luke has now graduated the reader from, I pick up my burden, I carry it as a disciple of Christ, and in the end, what I realize I'm actually carrying is Jesus' death. See how Luke has subtly brought you to Calvary. And he does it through the words of Jesus through the actions of the people at the foot of the cross. So Christianity then, and I know being broad scale here, we're we're squeezing a ton of theology into one little shot, but for purposes of understanding what we're doing as followers of Jesus, I'm coming to Christ and in my day-to-day life, I realize that I pick up the burden of responsibility of following Jesus. And some of that is that some parts of me die as I follow him. And that that happens as I disciple and am discipled. It doesn't stop. I don't graduate to this level where, well, I don't, I don't die. I don't carry my cross any longer. I've been saved long enough. No, part of being a disciple, a continuous disciple of Christ, is that I continue to carry. But what I start to realize is that I'm actually carrying his death. It's not my work. It's his work. I start to pick up the knowledge as, you want to know what really happens as you grow up? As you grow up in Christ, you start to realize that it was never about you dying. It was about his death becoming your death to all the areas of your life. And that's graduating as a believer. Graduating as a believer is not the ability to spot demons. Graduating as a believer is not the power to knock stuff over with your, your, uh, your quotations and your arguments. But the, the, the spiritual maturity, there's a lot of things about spiritual maturity, but part of growing up in Christ and growing into the place of where we're supposed to be is that we realize we've taken up who he is and we've made it a part of who we are. We take up that cross. But let's talk about that cross because I use that word 
very familiar. You think about Jesus dying there, but I want you to think in the Greek for a moment. The Greek word is staros, and uh, an upright stake. <laughs> That's not something we do much with. Very simple definition, though, in most Greek writing is a staros is any piece of wood. In fact, the New Testament uses it a lot of times for staves. Remember, Jesus says to the soldiers in the garden, you guys come to me with spears and with staves, a word we never use. That's an old King James. That's an old English word. It meant a rod, a stick, a spear sometimes. You could, uh, there was an assortment of ways for a stave to be made into a weapon, but a word that just means a big piece of wood. And that's what the cross is defined as in the New Testament, just a piece of wood. There's really nothing special about the definition. But then the New Testament writers begin to do something both special, I think, and interesting with the cross, the staros, because the New Testament writers start to transform that staros into something with much deeper meaning. And here's one of the ways that they do it that is easy to forget, is that most of our New Testament writers have at least a very far beyond pedestrian knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures. All right? Some of it is rather pedestrian, but some of it is rather deep. You get to the writings of the Apostle Paul, you're probably talking about one of the brightest minds of his day in regards to Hebrew Scriptures. Um, we, would, we would consider Paul a scholar, um, probably of the highest order, um, which is kind of fascinating when you consider that many Christians look at scholars now as um, like academics are part of the problem. You would have hated Paul. He was as academic as it got in his day, and, and it needed to be that way because you needed a mind that could apply the depths of the Hebrew Scriptures into the revelation of, an, of a resurrected Christ so that the two married one another. You could not have these opposing theologies in which all the Hebrew Scriptures... Can you imagine a lesser mind might take the Hebrew Scriptures and kick them out? But a... a a brighter mind takes them and, and marries them together with what they're seeing in Christ. It's not just Paul that does this, but a lot of the New Testament writers start to take that, those sort of Old Testament ideas and begin to do something else with them. I'll give you an example. Okay, Three times in the book of Acts, something begins to happen and then starts to happen across the New Testament narrative. But it starts right there in Acts, which is very fitting for us because we just come out of thinking about the church. Now we're thinking about the cross. The church transformed the cross as a message. Here's an example of how they did it from Acts 5. And I'm going to read a few more verses than I need because I want to show you what's happening here. Peter and some of the apostles, nameless, have been arrested for preaching about Jesus as Messiah. Okay, Messiah, uh, Hebrew for anointed. The Greek would be Christ. So when they're preaching Christ, they're preaching Messiah. So the Jews begin to... The council begins to bring them up on charges and they bring them and set them before the council and the high priest asks them, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? Look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. And this is a interesting, so we don't have a lot of time to work with this, but that's a fascinating question. They can already feel the heat of Rome on the insurgences that are happening. And so they say, what are you trying to do? Bring this man's blood on us. You're trying to make us guilty of something. 29. Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Which is an interesting moment that I'm going to come back to in a second. But I want you to think about the fact 
that the English translates this word tree. And I want you to think about why it translates this word as tree. 31. This is the rest of Peter's message in a nutshell. Him God has exalted to the right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are his witnesses to these things and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. I, just, I didn't want to just stop. I wanted to finish out the Peter's, the Peter's sermon. It's, it's be, the beginnings of what would become brilliant Christian theology. Now go back one screen, Brian, because I want to show that one more time in verse 30. The God of our fathers... This is the God of the Hebrews. This is an Old Testament. This is, this is linking us back to Abraham, right? So the God of Abraham raised up Jesus. There's a resurrection message. Resurrected Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. And more, two more times in the book of Acts, the book of Acts calls the cross a tree. What's the big deal? Tree is the Greek word xylon, Wood, or more specifically, literally, a tree. But what it is not is the Greek word staros. Staros is what you would say if you were to talk about the cross. But xylon is what you would talk about if you were talking about a tree. It's literally the same word that Jesus used when he said, you people, he's talking to Israel, and he goes, you people do these things in a green tree, what will you do in the days of a dry tree? You're going to do this now, what will you do when things get worse? Right. And he's literally talking about a tree. When the New Testament talks about Jesus cursing a fig tree, it's not a, he doesn't go over and curse a piece of wood. He goes over and curses the xylon. He, he curses an actual living tree. Now, keep that in mind because that is a moment that has been kind of lost on me because I have always called Calvary the tree on which Jesus died. It's been part of my Christian language. Jesus died on a tree. Died on a tree for me. Where'd we get that? Well, we got it from the New Testament, but where did they get it? Because frankly, Jesus didn't die on a tree. And you might say, well, that's semantics. He died on a piece of wood. Yes, exactly. He died on a piece of wood. But nobody thought to call it a tree until the disciples start to call it a tree. The apostles start to call it a tree. And there seems to be a reason why they would land on that. Now, it doesn't take long up in just a few centuries after Christ that we start to get the symbol that becomes the cross. Um, you know, that, that lowered bar that we would might even call a, almost a lowercase t. Sort of an interesting etymology that starts to happen around the cross. By the way, there was probably not a cross outside of any city in Rome that looked like a lowercase t. Um, it was probably a little bit closer to the tau version of the cross that come from the Chaldeans, which would have been a little more like the uppercase t, in which... The criminal actually carried the cross beam. And that's the stave that Jesus drags up the cross. Not the full-blown cross. But as he carries that beam across his shoulder, what happens is the vertical beams stay in the ground. They never take those out of the ground. They leave them for the most part. And then most likely crucify the victim onto the, the beam they carried and then lift them up and set them on the top of that pole. And so the old Chaldean Tau, the T-A-U, which was actually, interestingly enough, a, a symbol used for a foreign god. And Christianity, by the third century, brought, were, were trying to bring in converts, start to bring in pagan symbols. And one of the pagan symbols they allowed was the Tau. And to Christianize the Tau, they dropped it just a little bit. 
until we got ourselves a lowercase t and we come up with the cross. Although probably didn't look that way if you went back in time. And by the time you get to Constantine, it's transformed from this to this to this because Constantine has a dream, middle of the night, and he sees the X, which is the Greek chi. The chi and the chi is the um, abbreviation for the Christos, for Christ. So he wakes up the next day and he goes, we're supposed to put the, cr the cross. That's what he meant, not that. So let's put the cross on the front of our shields. And God told me in a dream that if we put the symbol of the Christ on the front of our shields, when we go into battle, we won't lose. And the Roman Empire married itself to the symbol of Christ, the Greek X, which, by the way, leads us to Xmas which is not Xing out Christ because you don't want to spell Christ in Christmas. It's the Greek symbol for Christ that links to the third century. Xmas is older than Christmas, just for a little bit of uh, fun. Um, use it in this part of the world at your peril, by the way. <laughs> but but so, so that, from that, from that, but the reality is it's a stick that Jesus drags up his hill to Calvary and then dies there, but it's not a tree. Yet the New Testament begins to make it happen. Watch how Paul does it. Paul's most famous contribution to this argument. He doesn't do this much, but he does here. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And he uses the Greek word here for the tree, the Zylon. Now, of course, he's borrowing from the Old Testament in which Deuteronomy, the Torah says that a man's cursed if he hangs on a tree. But Paul grabs that obscure little verse from the Torah and drags it into the New Testament and decides that Jesus didn't just die on a piece of wood. Jesus died on a tree. And that becomes the landing spot for Peter. First Peter 2.24, probably the most famous moment of Zylon in the New Testament. Christ himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. And there's a real presence to Peter's statement here. The tree. Like his audience is supposed to know what that means. Now, I read that for a long time and thought, well, his audience does. His audience reads it and thinks cross, right? Jesus died for us on the cross. But Peter is speaking to the diaspora. If you go back to the beginning of his book, the diaspora is the, are the dispersed Jewish brethren from his childhood who have come to faith in Christ but have scattered over the globe. And Peter's trying to write to his Jewish brethren about Jesus. And so when Peter says he died for us on the tree, he's speaking in Hebrew terms so that his Hebrew audience might understand what it is that he's saying. And here's what I think the New Testament writers are doing. Genesis. 2, 8 and 9. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree, and when you read the Septuagint, which is written in Greek, every Zylon, grow that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the middle of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And without wasting any of your... Because you know this story, and you know the existence of the tree of life and the existence of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And you know that I, for one, do not believe that Genesis is trying to give you a blow-by-blow -blow account of actual events in history, but is trying to give you an understanding of your history, which, by the way, is way bigger than any blow-by-blow -blow account of history. It's trying to get you to understand your history and to investigate, and that makes it much deeper than if it was a history book. Because if it's a history book, you, you know why a lot of people hate history? And a lot of people do, I know. I love history personally, but a lot of people hate history. Part of the reason they hate it is because they have bad teachers. You don't make history exciting. Why would anybody care about stuff that happened a long time ago? Doesn't seem to matter to them. But a lot of people hate history because we reduce history to facts. And we don't uncover why. We just talk about what. So we go, what happened on April something, 1863? And then you're supposed to memorize what happened at the battle of so-and-so and the names of the generals and who died and what. But we don't get into why. And nobody cares about what, but why matters. And so for me, Genesis came alive when I got past what. And I started getting into why. So here's my thoughts. The story of two trees in paradise is our way of comprehending choice. The ability to choose life or the ability to choose death and our subsequent slavery to conscience because we become slaves to that internal battle that happens inside of us that starts happening when we're little kids. And we saw it kind of play out humorously on TV in the 20th century with little devil and little angel on the shoulders and little devils having fun and partying and little angels over here praying and Little devil's telling you to be bad and little angel's telling you to be good. And that's just an illustrative way of saying you got this little fight going on inside of you and you become a slave to your own conscience. Genesis Paradise Story is trying to tell you why. The New Testament writers reframed the piece of wood of the cross and start talking about it as a new tree. And the tree becomes the way to life through dying because they start to talk about Jesus dying for you. Jesus dying as you. Jesus dying in your place. Stuff that no one ever thought to say in the Old Testament, they're saying it in the New. And they're linking it all the way back to Genesis by seeing Jesus cursed on that tree. The New Testament writers are giving us a way back into paradise and a way that is free from the slavery of the sin consciousness, free from the slavery of living by my consciousness, the ability to choose from another tree. Now, lest you think I'm out in the weeds, and I might be anyway, but lest you are convinced that I'm out in the weeds, the Old Testament tries to bring us back to this. I've only recently become enamored of this, this thought process that if you pay careful enough attention in the Old Testament and you follow it without your Christian theology in there, you just follow it. It actually tries to give you some clues along the way as to what's happening. But we've so Christianized the Hebrew text that sometimes we just jump over stuff. Okay, for instance, Adam and Eve, this is definitely just a for instance, but Adam and Eve sin, Cain and Abel are born. We grab Paul that says because of one man's sin, death come upon us all, and we preach original sin into Adam so now Cain and Abel are born lost. But the Bible tries to help us. In Genesis 4, God shows up to Cain and goes, Hey Cain, what's wrong? 
Don't you know sin lies at your door? And it's your destiny to rule over it. Which right there in Genesis 4 is God's way of going, flashing red light, slow down if you think Cain is an automatic sinner, because he's not. And I'm going to throw a text right in here in Genesis 4 to show you that he's not born dead. He's going to choose to die. And so he chooses the sin that lies right outside of his door, just like his mom did with the snake in the garden. And it's also the Bible's way of showing, don't blame Eve, don't blame Adam, it's on you. Yeah, okay. Now, in case you miss it there, the Torah comes along and God starts giving the law and God starts laying out in front of Israel choice. The power to choose how you live your life. Listen to Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. God says, see, this is God talking, by the way. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. And that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, keep his commandments, his statutes, his judgments, that you may live and that you may multiply and that the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away... If your heart turns away so that you don't hear and you're drawn away and you worship other gods and you serve, look, this is your choice. Before you move to the next screen, just go back to the top. Look what you can do. You can go life and good. You can go death and evil. You get to choose. What do you want to do? And then when you get down here, if your heart turns away, you don't want to hear and you're drawn away. You worship other gods and you serve them. Next. Then I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. Listen, it's going to kill you. If you choose the wrong way, you're in trouble. And you're not going to prolong your days in the land when you cross over to the Jordan to go in and possess it. I call heaven and earth as a witness today against you. Look at that. I've set before you. Here it is. This is the recapitulated Genesis tree story in Deuteronomy 30, 19. Watch this in the 19th verse. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you. The same heavens and earth from Genesis are witnessing against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life that both you and your descendants may live. It's your choice. You have the power to choose what you're going to do with your life. You have the power to choose the direction you're going to take. And yet, they're under the curse of the law. So Paul goes, Christ was made a curse by dying on a tree. Because curses every man who dies on a tree. And then you get all the way back here. And you're just about to close this thing out. The book of Revelation. And Revelation 22.1 says this. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. And in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the Zylon of life, was the tree. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, and your New Testament writers have been trying to reinsert the tree on their way to justify and change it, which it bore 12 fruits, each tree, fruit, each tree yielding its fruit every month. It's fresh, it's new. It's life and the leaves of the tree will heal the nations. Look at that. And then when you sneak down to 1415, blessed are those who do his commandments. This is terrible. I, this translation right here, this is New King James, but our earliest Greek manuscript says those who have washed them their robes and made them white. And then somewhere in the Middle Ages, we started changing it because we wanted to make sure that we thought that people that got to heaven were commandment keepers. But our earliest Greek said, for those who had washed their robes, they have the right to eat the tree of life and enter through the gates into the city. Outside the city are dogs, sorcerers, 
sexually immoral, murderers, adulterers, and whoever loves and practices a lie. By the way, this is Revelation 22. In Revelation 21, those same people were cast into the lake of fire. And so one chapter earlier, the allegory has them suffering. One chapter later, the story has the trees can heal those who are outside. And you know what happens two verses after this? Let he who is thirsty come and drink of the waters of life. And the spirit and the bride say, come. So you're invited to come and eat from the tree. Here's what I think we're seeing. We fall at a tree in the garden. This is elementary stuff right here. You could actually teach, this could be kids Sunday school. And you couldn't do any better theologically with a group of kids. This would be the gospel in a nutshell. There's a story in the Bible about how we become who we are. That the battle that you have inside is because that's, that's, that's exemplified by the fact that we are a fallen people. We fall at a tree in a garden. And trees are meant to make us happy and they're meant to give us shade and they're meant to give us food and they're meant to give us life. We took something that was supposed to be beautiful and it became rotten because isn't that the way life is? Things are supposed to be beautiful and then they turn rotten and they're junky. But lo and behold, then comes Jesus. And Jesus dies as the fallen on a tree. Who are the fallen? Well, all you got to do is look at the first line. We fall at a tree in the garden. Jesus comes as one of the fallen people, as us, to die on a tree. Interesting. If you're going to deliver us from what happened on a tree, you're only going to be able to do it from a tree. Because if you're going to save people from death, you're going to have to die. If you're going to, this is why Moses was told to make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. If you get bit by the snake, Israel, look up here. Because if you got bit by the snake, the only way to get over the bite is to confront the snake. And you want to know what that means, sort of psychologically or spiritually for you? If you want to overcome what it is that haunts you, you must face what haunts you. If you want to overcome where you're weak, you must admit where you are weak. For when you are weak, he is strong. And when he is strong, you become strong. But you cannot become strong in the place that you don't acknowledge you have weakness. And it's not just a spiritual fact, it's a psychological fact. It's deep down in our core that what we refuse to confront becomes bigger than it should. And that snake becomes a dragon. And then he comes out of the sea. And he has seven heads, which is ridiculous. Because why is he seven times bigger than he ought to be? Well, it's because he's been down in there for a long, long time, not being dealt with. And that's kind of what happens as we don't go back to the place of that failure. And so the cross becomes the place of my failure. It becomes a place where fallen people get to die to their failure. And Jesus invites me in. Pick up your cross. Follow me. You'll ultimately find it's my cross that you're carrying. And then finally, we live off the leaves of another tree in a garden city. We fall at a tree, the fallen dies on a tree, and then we raise up to live off the leaves of another tree. And I call it a garden city because in reality, the new Jerusalem is a recapitulation of paradise, which was given to us in Genesis. But it's broad. See, a garden's private, Adam and Eve. You don't invite your neighborhood to your garden. It's big enough for you to pick beans and Tomatoes. Gardens by, by definition are small. Cities are populous, containing everything. Interestingly, the garden gets put into a city because the intimacy of the garden 
becomes the fullness of the city of God in Revelation. And what's the life giver? Another tree. And those trees are for the healing of the nations. And this is your question, the one you got to take home with you. And that's, what tree is this? And I really think that the New Testament writers have been trying to link us back and put the cross into terms that the Hebrew audience through their narrative can understand, can comprehend. What tree is this? What is this saying to me? What do we walk away with in messages like this? Not hopefully just a bunch of ABCs connect the dots. Ooh, that was a cool thing. But hopefully we walk away with the realization that when we are asked by Jesus to pick up our cross, we're not just simply being, we're not, first of all, we're not being asked to die to sin every day. Jesus died unto sin once. God's not asking you to self-sacrifice to sin. You've already died to sin. One of the things I think that have moved people, and we got more response again this week by mail. So the, they were slow coming in from people who those last messages on Jesus teaches, the cross teaches us how to die, been so influential in their lives. I, it spoke to people in a way I did not expect because I think it's starting to strike some Christians that they don't have the equipment that they should have to face the death that is inevitably going to be theirs. And part of that reason is because we've pushed death off as something that should not be discussed, but we've also not identified what the cross is doing. And the cross is the place where we get introduced into what it means to lay down what we are to be who he is. The world likes to say you should live like you are dying. I think the church ought to adopt you should live like you've already died. Because in reality, that is what has happened. You have died with him, but you should live as if your death is in him. And there is another version of it that is to come the one that you have no reason to be scared of because you've been practicing dying since the day you met Jesus. You've been practicing laying down your own self. You've been practicing laying down your opening your hand and possessing nothing. You've been practicing giving up your right to be right, your right to be avenged, and your right to get back. You've been giving all of that up your whole life. You're a, constantly a disciple of it. You're daily carrying your cross. And at the end, what you're going to realize is that it's really His cross, that it's him you climbed up onto to be a part of his death so that you can walk into the fullness of your resurrection. Let's live like a people who have already died and who are using our day-to-day -day discipleship as practice for how to really die so that when our death comes, it is merely the outward expression of what started the day we dipped down into the waters of baptism. Every day thereafter, we picked up our cross and we followed Jesus in anticipation of eating the leaves off of a new tree. No longer slaves to an old tree. We recognize it. We see it. We know what it is. We've been given the choice again. We don't have to be slaves to the, sin, to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because we get to actively eat from the leaves of the tree of life, the one our first father missed, but our second Adam, our last Adam, introduced us to. And maybe, maybe sometimes we're the dog and the sorcerer and the sexually immoral and the murderer and the idolater and people who love and practice a lie, but the gates are open. And we can come in and eat from those leaves. And eating from those leaves takes us back to a tree. And you know what a tree does? It takes us consciously back to a cross. And a cross takes us back to a death. And what happens is we begin to die to our dog-like ways and our sorcerer-like ways and our murdering ways. And we die to them as we eat the leaves of a new tree and live in a new place. So the tree is the cross, but it's not just the cross anymore. Thank you, New Testament writers. 
for transforming a piece of wood into a tree we've seen before in Genesis, into a tree we see again in Revelation. And this is how you put Jesus in Genesis, and you put Jesus in Deuteronomy, and you put Jesus at the cross, and you put Jesus in Galatians, and you put Jesus in 1 Peter, and you put Jesus in Revelation, and He becomes that tree that becomes our life. Let's practice that. Let's practice that. Being a people who live as if they've already died in anticipation of the life that He gives us and the death that is yet to come. And let's start there by praying that in our own life and then how to live that in front of others because that's part of our own carrying the cross. Father, thank You for this, for this moment tonight in which we have seen clearly with resurrected eyes who You are on that cross. The snapshot we got tonight, the one we have in this room at this moment, was that what Calvary was doing was repitching the tree. The tree we should have eaten from in Genesis, but we didn't. And we've been making the wrong choice most of our time, but then we get another chance. We get to meet you at that tree, and you get to show us the leaves that heal the nations. And we get to come through the gate and consume what you have done and take it with us and not take it to the door and leave it till next Sunday, but carry the cross daily because we're disciples a people who live as if they've already died and who are living a resurrected life. And we thank you for how, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I thank you that you're going to. And this personal revelation each of us gets to walk into and then live that out. Teach us how to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.